Hey everyone, it's Kim Cavill, and welcome back to 6 Minute Sex Ed, the podcast that helps people talk about sex and relationships. I'm so glad you're listening because I've got some great and exciting news to share. First of all, last week we passed our 33,000th download of the podcast, which is amazing. And I love all of your DMs and your comments and your emails that I get every week about how you're using the podcast and how much of a difference it's making in classrooms and families really all across the world. So keep those coming. I absolutely love hearing from you. Since making all of the episodes available for free, my listener numbers have been skyrocketing, which is amazing. So keep rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It helps people find us. And some of those archived episodes that I made available for free don't have the full show notes attached to the episode descriptions yet. I'm going to get to that as soon as I can. So if you're looking for those links, please just be patient. So with all of that out of the way, let's get to this week's show. This week, we're going to be doing an interview, so I'm super excited about this. It's not really a level one or level two episode like my other structures. If I had to pinpoint, I'd say level two. We're going to talk to Jenny Waugh, who's a sex educator with qualifications in sexuality and gender studies. Um, and lots of experience in HIV prevention and treatment, and she's going to have ASEC certification pending. She's super passionate about culturally competent sex education and public health, and as well as increasing our access to information and all the resources that we need to thrive. I really wanted to talk to Jenny about her experience in HIV prevention and treatment, which is, you know, something I'm super passionate about if you've been listening to the pod. I also wanted to talk to her about her qualifications in the ASEC certification because so many people reach out to me to ask about how they get started as a sex educator. And there's not just one right path. There's lots of paths into this kind of business. So I really wanted to talk to her about her experience and how she's arriving and coming into this work. I'm super excited to share this conversation with you. Here we go. Hey, Jenny, how are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. I know um, we tried to talk yesterday and we had an ocean of IT problems. So I'm really glad that we could connect today and talk because I'm super excited to talk to you today. So, um, my first question for you that I really like to ask anybody I talk to on Six Minute Sex Ed is, uh, tell me a little bit about why you got into this area of work. Like, what got you to where you are today? Sure. So that started for me uh, right in the beginning when I first started college. I had to take a speech class, um, and it was based on three different speeches, something you identified as a problem, a um, intended solution, and then a kind of a motivational speech. And I chose the topic of unplanned pregnancy. wasn't anything that was really a prior interest or anything I, I knew about, um, but stuck out to me. And my professor did not want me to do that. She didn't think it was a, like an actual problem and didn't think I'd have any enough content to make this speech. Um, and so I did that over the whole semester. I talked about you know implementing comprehensive sex education, and then at the end, encouraging healthy behaviors um, from my peers in the classroom and. I loved it. People, I feel, I hear at least, tend to hate public speaking or hate speech class. It was such a dreaded course. And I 
got such a thrill out of, I think it was the fact that I was told that something I believed in or I believed was an issue we needed to work on wasn't a big deal. It wasn't something we could talk about. And then turning it into something that really worked, I got a lot of good feedback. Um, I, I got the first thrill of feeling like what I was saying mattered to people, that um, they were hearing what I was saying and it was making it a difference for them. So that was really exciting. My sex education was not memorable at all. So that kind of says good and bad. I don't have any real traumatic stories or, you know, fears put in my head or anything. It wasn't something talked about in my house and a very brief in school. Um, but that, uh, interest in sexual health really came later when, once I went through that speech class and then I, uh, I found that there was a sexuality and gender studies minor, uh, at my mm. university and started in that. And that's when I really got to start learning and teaching and getting really involved and realizing that's what I was really passionate about. Wow. So when you, um, when you said that, like your professor, then like, that's not really a problem in response to your topic choice. Like my mouth just dropped open to the floor. So like I was sitting here listening to you talk with my mouth on the floor. Cause it was like, wait, on what planet are you from? Yeah, I know. That's so that amazing was, to me. It was fun to kind of go against the grain, I guess. And that's kind of what I'll be doing forever working in sexual health. There's always yeah. people that don't want to hear it. I think we shouldn't be talking about this with this group or at this age or whatever. And having that, I guess, I don't know, drive within me to be like, well, you know what? I'm going to tell you why. And we're going to talk about that together. And yeah, yeah. hopefully That's have some change here. So it's, and I always think just going off, um, you know, especially, and I'm sure we're going to hit on this in a little bit, like the unplanned pregnancy issue. I think so much of our conversation just like nationally about that is always hyper-focused on teenagers, right? Mm -hmm. And young people Mm -hmm. like, um, we don't want our teenagers to get pregnant before they want to get pregnant. And then, you know, of course the implicit message is is that like, uh, we don't want teenagers to get pregnant at all, you know, for various reasons. You ask some people and they'll have, of course, moral and religious reasons. Other people will claim, um, you know, various public health outcomes that are, um, you know, in policy houses, like you want to avoid, obviously associated with unintended pregnancy that happens in adolescence. But mm-hmm. I find it so interesting because, you know, nationally about half of our pregnancies in the United States every year are unplanned, you know, mm-hmm. like, so this isn't <laughs> like, we're sitting here, we're like, we want to talk about it in terms of teenagers, but it's like, yeah, except that half of the babies born in the United States every year to everyone collectively are unplanned. So like, this isn't a teenager problem, no. you know? And then there's the, that implies that all women want to have children mm-hmm. or are ready and willing at all times. That makes it sound like the only thing that we put in this bracket of unplanned pregnancy is, is young women and their yeah. partners. No, I mean, this is a, it's a lifelong Mm-hmm. issue. Women also continue to have sex and have lives and are ready and not ready to have children or don't want to have children at any time in their life. So you're right. It's very, it's put in that weird frame of really being, it's like, we're just talking about young women and that's not really the case. Yeah. And then you have that weird thing where you have like the government that throws out, um, you know, recommendations for programs that we don't bother to ask good questions, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. government policy or research when it really comes to sex ed or sexual violence prevention. Like we just have collectively decided we don't really care enough to do the research and ask what works, ask what doesn't. So the few things that we have, you know, we know that the research has shown that 
the the things that we know to have demonstrated some type of efficacy have never been tested for diverse populations or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these limitations that are built into even the data that we do have to rely on. And so at the end, you get these like, at minimum, implicitly racist, you know, um, sex education pro- programs that are like built around risk avoidance as much as possible and that shame um, young people who are parenting. And then, you know, organizations get grants to bring those into schools. And then here you are, you're going to sit and you're going to talk to uh, teenagers about risk avoidance when many of those teenagers are already sexually active to some degree and some of them are parenting. And like your program itself is built to say like, you can't be a parent when you're young successfully. And then, you know, so it's just like, um, the whole thing kind of falls down, you know, that area, like it it doesn't work. So I'm so glad that, um, but we're getting sidetracked because we could, I could talk about this forever, but that's amazing. So thank you for sharing why you got into this work and then a little bit about what sex ed was like for you. And you know, it's good to not have traumatic (laughs) memories. I mean, that's good. Ideally we would want positive ones, but yeah, I guess not having trauma, you know, that's a step in the right direction. So many people carry that around. So Let's um, let's talk a little bit about what you've learned through your studies in about effective health messaging when it comes to messages about um, healthy sexuality and even you know what our government is so obsessed with, which is risk reduction or risk avoidance. Sure. Yeah, and that's actually perfect. Um, continuing off of um, where you were going. Mm. Um, what we talked about a lot in my graduate program, um, it was health communication, and so. Um, looking a lot at how we present health messages and health campaigns and ideas and how we're able to use them to actually make change. And a lot of it is so misinformed. Um, The goal is really to base your intended health message, whatever that may be, that's about, you know, getting the HPV vaccine or that's, you know, increasing condoms down to the basics. It's having cultural awareness Mm-hmm. Um, it's knowing, um, the group that you're, um, intending to focus on and their social norms, uh, even things like their reading level or accessible resources for them. You know, you mentioned like providing this focus on teen mom or mm-hmm. on young teens having sex, not getting pregnant. And some of them already are young mothers at that time. And it's mm-hmm. just, you've missed the mark. It's not doing anything. And so it's being realistic uh, based on the audience and really being aware based on you can be a, like me, I am a young um, woman coming from white privilege, going in and speaking to a group of, Mm. um, say, um, uh, African-American men who have sex with men who live below poverty line. It's so hard to come in and make that connection because I think it can also be easy and someone um, working in health promotion to say, you you know, do A, B, and C, and then you're going to get health outcome D. Mm-hmm. Being ignorant to who you're speaking to, what they understand, what they're able to even do mm-hmm. based on, you know, where they live, their lifestyle, their transportation. You know, my mom works three jobs because she has four kids because our dad's out of the picture because mm-hmm. we are in this systemic, mm-hmm. you know, chain that just keeps going on and on. And that, that we see a lot of that with HIV mm-hmm. um, because it's, uh, uh, it is, you know, considered a sexually transmitted infection, but, um, it is a diagnosis that has so many social determinants of health. It's not something that we can just say, you know, 
wear a condom, have less sex partners, you know, these traditional yeah. um, messages we get, and it's not going to make a difference based on the, they're so marginalized in the system that's oppressed them to the point that it's, it's not even getting anywhere. You're, 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 yeah. you're wasting these funds and you're wasting your energy on things. Um, there was a campaign um, that stuck out to me as someone who has looked into um, effective health messaging. And it was, um, it was a condom campaign uh, put on by the health department um, where I used to live. And it just, it was wear one. It was the wear one campaign. And it okay. had a picture of a condom and it said wear one. And that was every billboard. I just like, what is that? What are you? What <laughs> I mean, are the most I basic guess it's things simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the most basic things that people do get any type of sex education is condoms. That's how you prevent yeah. STIs and unplanned pregnancies. Condoms been around forever and ever. People know that, or, you know, that's something that at least if not ever, I can't assume everybody knows that, but mm. it's, it's, it's a common, you know, mm-hmm. um, you're not, you're not encouraging any behavior change. You're not providing health information or even resources where you can get a condom or right. whatever. It's just so ill-informed and people who plan any kind of these, whether it's a health campaign or just like a program or, you know, some kind of educational event, you just need to consider these factors or you're not going to make any kind of difference, um, with the, with the population that you're working with. So. Yeah. So we need a lot more. What you're saying is that we need to be a lot more culturally sensitive in our public health messaging. And I think that would mean then making sure that the people that are in the decision-making positions behind these campaigns are actually connected and representative of the communities that these Definitely. campaigns are trying to reach. Right. And yes. that's, that's a big issue for sure. Mm-hmm. So um, my next question, I'd love to talk more to you about your work in HIV prevention and treatment. You know, this is an area that anybody that's listening to the podcast knows that I'm super, super passionate about. So I'd love to hear about your work in that area for sure. Yeah, definitely. So um, I mentioned kind of, I had a background in sexual health ever since I, I you know, I went through that speech class and then I adopted um, my sexual, um, sexuality and gender studies minor and, you know, my internship was at a reproductive health clinic. Uh, everything I did was kind of in that realm. And I still, uh, I realized, uh, I was in grad school when I started working in, um, HIV healthcare. I realized then even someone like me who's taken handfuls of sexual health classes, I, I was a teaching assistant. I taught three classes about sexual health. There was so much about HIV that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the very basics. Um, if that, depending on where you are and what's allowed, but I realized very quickly that there was a lot to learn. And so very much of that started as a learning experience for me. I started out working in HIV prevention, um, and we did, uh, testing counseling, Mm -hmm. um, and then a lot of outreach. Uh, some of that was targeted where we would go to, um, you know, like a gay bar or resorts Mm -hmm. in the area. We went to a ton of pride festivals, but then just also community health fairs and the VA and Mm -hmm. um, just getting out and talking to one, just the community in general, which was really helpful for me to hear from other people, just kind of a lot of that like misinformation or um, myths or ideas that uh, every, you know, just your everyday person, not in, you know, the sexual health field or um, someone even specifically in, you know, the LGBT community has. And then, um, working with the people in the testing setting. Uh, So that was a really great learning experience for me to hear from people um, who really were the, the groups, you know, most likely to come in contact with HIV. Um, You know, this, the the typical, you know, public health outcomes we see, you know, um, no men who have sex with men, um, 
uh, sex workers, um, mm-hmm. you know, young African American men. Um, it's a variety of folks, but um, using that as the educator, um, I was the one learning a lot, mm-hmm. um, which was really great. Um, I got comfortable with talking about stuff like this with people. Mm-hmm. That's really sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, um, we did it from you know a, an informed risk reduction perspective where. Uh, we weren't there to tell you same thing. You know, if you don't want to contract HIV, wear a condom, you'll be Mm -hmm. fine. Um, We had, you know, what we were required to talk about by the state and a questionnaire to go through, but to use that just to kind of learn their lifestyle. Um, You, you don't like condoms. You use them 50% of the times you absolutely hate them. Okay. That's going to change how I'm going to recommend. We can do other things. Like Mm -hmm. we really um, recommended using the internal condom, Mm -hmm. um, or anal sex, which is a lot of people, people don't hear about the internal condom in general for many reasons. Um, yeah. But that's something that we did recommend um, for receptive partners, um, mm-hmm. using lube, uh, just talking about different things that we could incorporate that weren't just a typical keep a condom in your pocket. And right. Because okay, we, you know, we just don't see that. Yeah. Um, so that was great um, for that aspect for me as, um, you know, as a sexual health educator to learn about that. And then, um, transitioning into a more client services role. I also started working with people that were living with HIV and that was also pretty eye-opening to me um, as well to learn that HIV really is not the disease or even just the diagnosis that people still believe that it is. Yeah. Uh, Or we have this idea that if someone contracts HIV in order for them to live a normal life, a healthy life to survive, it's someone we, it's a, a, someone who comes from money or is a celebrity that we hear about, or, mm-hmm. you know, we only work with clients who are living under the poverty line and people like, like I said, very marginalized populations. Um, it was a matter of the access and a matter of the support. And I mm-hmm. want that tattooed somewhere just mm-hmm. like access, access, access. Because first of all, it was getting people in the door. It was one getting to reaching these populations wherever we needed to go, mm-hmm. um, making sure we were getting the people that were hardest to reach. Those are the people not being tested, and then immediately um, providing the support. Um, you know, I would say even before our tests would process, when I was just talking to people doing an HIV test, you know, the first thing I would say is, you know, you're in the right place regardless of the outcome mm-hmm. um, today. Um, you know, HIV is not what it was 20, 30 years ago when with having, you know, access though, to the case Mm -hmm. management, to insurance assistance, to housing assistance, food security, these things that people, they may be, you know, their health may be the very least of their priority, especially when it's someone, Mm -hmm. you know, who's homeless or, you know, in stately Mm -hmm. house or having those options, um, but just how much of a difference they make. I don't know if you're familiar at all with the 90-90-90 initiative. Mm -mm. That was a initially adopted by the United Nations AIDS program. Um, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and that's that 90% of people will know their status. 90% of people who know their status will be in care. And then 90% of those individuals will be undetectable. And our agency went by that state country. It's, it's, uh, it's just kind of like a, a global initiative. Um, and the numbers actually aren't that bad. That sounds very, I feel, even as someone who's worked in the field, high reaching. Mm-hmm. Um, most recent studies show it's 79% of people who are living with HIV know their status. Mm-hmm. 78% are then in care and 86% are undetectable. Oh, wow. So we really worked from the 
idea that uh, treatment as prevention um, and that's um, achieving undetectable status for those yeah. living with HIV um, it should really be a public health initiative. A lot of people don't have never heard about undetectable. Yeah. Uh, you know, U equals U, that doesn't mean anything. Um, but really framing it as, you know, the, the accurate information, someone who has access to antiretroviral medication, sometimes and most times just one pill a day, um, taken daily as prescribed after just a couple months, sometimes less, sometimes more with uh, monitoring every three to six to sometimes mm-hmm. a year, just, you know, staying on top of your health in that one aspect can lead to your numbers being so low that you cannot transmit HIV at all. Yeah. So it is great that we have PrEP if we can ever get it to be accessible. Yeah. But um, we also... <laughs> need to look at, I feel like, undetectable as an active strategy as well. You know, PrEP is, you know, it's preventable, preventative and it's in response to people not knowing their status or not sharing their status. But we also really need to focus on um, the concept of people who are undetectable being able to live regular, healthy lives, and that includes their sex lives. Um, and so that's something that also I, I definitely learned working with these people. I learned it from a textbook and I learned it from the mm-hmm. PowerPoint in college, but now I know what it's like for people to actually be living with HIV or people who are at great risk of contracting HIV and what life is like for them and how to navigate their health in a way that is preventative, but then also if it is something that they are diagnosed with, mm-hmm. how to you know navigate that moving forward and all those different complicated systems with the you know the yeah. program and the housing, et cetera. And it's so important. I'm so glad that you talked about that because um, what was it? A couple weeks ago, I think Jonathan Van Ness, you know, decided mm-hmm. to make public his status as an HIV positive, someone who's living with HIV, he's an HIV positive person. But then I appreciated like a couple of days after that had kind of made the rounds on Twitter, there was a video clip of him being interviewed about his book. And he was actually asked about that and then explained just like in less than a minute undetectable means untransmissible. And I was like, oh my God, you've, you've just spoken to how many millions of people that are going to see your video clip. And that, you know, I know I just had goosebumps too. And it was so important (laughs) because um, it's such an, I agree with you. It's such an important message to get out. Mm -hmm. You know, we run into the same issue that we have just with making prep available and accessible Mm -hmm. that we have, frankly, I would argue across our entire fragmented super expensive, very inefficient healthcare system in the United States. I mean, this is where, yet again, um, I would argue a universal healthcare system would really help us out to make sure that everybody has access to the care that they need, you know, and certainly in people who are living with HIV, making sure that they're under the detectable threshold and Mm -hmm. so they can't transmit. So absolutely, I'm so glad that you went and talked about that. And I just realized as you were talking as well, that not everybody listening to Six Minute Sex Ed might not, you know, they might not understand exactly what goes into getting tested for HIV. So if you could just explain like maybe the process of getting an HIV test in just a minute or so, I think that'd be really helpful. Sure. So the first point I want to make is that if in most places, if you do not ask for an HIV test, you're not going to be tested for HIV. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I also didn't learn until later in life, um, I would go in for my, um, you know, routine testing, which I felt like was pretty frequently, but they would, I don't know if it's the same, but at the time, you know, ask a question, do you sleep with men who have sex with men or bisexual men or um, a couple risk factors, mm-hmm. you know, drug use, but that's about it. And I didn't even know why they were asking me those questions. They're not going to use that, that test. It's a blood draw. It's not just um, like a urinalysis or a mm-hmm. swab, but I feel like it is becoming 
more accessible and more common, which is great, but you do have to speak up for yourself and advocate for yourself with that. Um, I specifically worked at um, an AIDS organization. So we were um, um, at the time just working with um, HIV prevention and treatment. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you can also go to, um, you know, a Planned Parenthood or your health department or a university health center. They're all equipped um, Mm -hmm. to do um, an HIV test. Um, What we did um, is just a quick finger poke. There's a little bit of blood, but it's not a blood draw. It's not getting, you know, your blood taken at the doctor's office. It's kind of like a diabetic needle finger poke. And then we draw just a little bit of blood. And then there's a test uh, that tests for HIV antigens and antibodies. Uh, There are two different kinds. There's one called an INSTE test. And that one takes five minutes to process. Mm -hmm. Um, It has a bigger window period, meaning a time between when you could uh, come in contact with HIV and Mm -hmm. when it's going to be on a test. Uh, and that is useful when you're doing HIV testing in a, you know, a big event, a lot of people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as much as we can get done. So they, they work, they're great. But mm-hmm. with the time that we had, we used one called the Allier test. Um, and that was a 20 minute test at that shorter um, window period. And then it also gives you that 20 minutes to have discussions with people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and talk about what's going on and what we're going to do moving forward and et cetera, et cetera. So it's a pretty easy process. You could be in and out in five minutes or you could be in and out in 20. And it's definitely scary, even for someone who may not believe that they are at risk. It's, you know, a lot of tension, anticipation of what, what could go on there. But um, in my experience, a lot of people that are doing this are people who are one trained to have these conversations, yes. who there to be there as support. People get turned away or turned off from testing. Um, I spoke with a lot of um, young men who have sex with men um, who had gone to different places um, and they felt that they were judged by, you know, listing the number of sex partners they've had or, yeah. you know, their sexual orientation and Ideally, places are going to, you know, be non-judgmental and yeah. be happy that you're here and here to help you, not here to raise eyebrows at you. But yeah, that's the goal. That's what well, we want everywhere. But yes, that's what we want. Absolutely, for sure. I mean, I remember because um, I I got an HIV test, and of course, the window period for the test that I had access to was about six months. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm doing two t- tests six months apart, and both of those tests were at my university health service because it was following an incident of uh, forced sex, you know, sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So just sitting by myself in those rooms was really, really nerve wracking. And I really appreciated the nurses who were there, you know, with me while I was waiting for those results. So it's really important that our medical providers have good training. And um, thank you so much for pointing out the fact that the HIV test isn't always included on a standard panel, you know, um, so much of the time, even in comprehensive sex education classes, I feel with most young people still don't have access to, but I think even in those classes, it's easy to forget to tell young people that um, when we say get tested, that doesn't mean you're tested for everything, mm-hmm. right? That's you're tested for some things like yeah. HIV test isn't always included and herpes is almost oh, never included. Right. So, you know, we have to tell young people these things so that they can decide how and when they wish to advocate for themselves for sure. So thank you for pointing that out and describing a test through our listeners. So definitely get tested. If you haven't been tested, it's good to know your net status. And then the last thing before, before I have to let you go, I really wanted to ask you a little bit about ASEX certification because so many people reach out to me, you know, through the podcast and through Instagram to find out about getting certification in this area of work. And ASEX mm-hmm. certification is of course the big name in the business. So I'd love it if you just could tell us a little bit about that process and what it's been like for you. Sure. Yeah. So 
it is a process. Mm-hmm. You use the right word there. Mm-hmm. Um, I am currently in a program um, at the University of Michigan. Um, it is an online program intended for people uh, in school or people um, with careers. So it's very accessible. It's every couple of months, a, a weekend I spend online. Um, but what I'm doing in that program is getting um, the 150 hours of core sex education knowledge required to mm-hmm. receive certification from ASECT. Uh, and there is, uh, Michigan isn't the only school that offers this program. Um, you can find it through their website. It's um, ASECT.org, A-A-S-E-C-T.org. And they have um, the programs um, available to get that educational component. Um, and then uh, after I complete this process, I will need to complete supervision hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are with someone who um, is an established member um, in ASECT. And that is that includes educators, counselors, and therapists. And I have to get, for my sex education requirement, is 25 hours. Mm-hmm. 20 can be in a group setting um, and five one-on-one. We mm-hmm. do this all via Skype and Zoom and mm-hmm. very accessible. It is a at least a two-year process. It has to be a minimum of two years and no more than five since mm-hmm. you uh, the time you uh, submit for um, the beginning of the certification process. So it is a lot. Uh, the program that... I'm in is really helpful in explaining that um, you, uh, the people, a lot of people in my group, not all are going to get their going on to get that ASEC certification, but they want the certificate that you know they're working on their um, mm-hmm. sex education or sex counseling um, certificate through this organization. But the ASEC is kind of like the overarching. But uh, step by step wise, you apply for membership. You have to um, take the take the education component and then do that supervision, which is great. That's just kind of like a mentor sort of thing. It's not supervising you doing work, which kind of sounded like to me, it's just um, kind of a mentor uh, relationship. And then um, the one thing that I did not know going into is um, you need to pay a membership annually to stay, um, to stay certified and then um, need to keep up with continuing education credits. So it is a commitment And I have been told just from working with others now in the program, it's definitely more recommended for the counselors and the therapy side, Mm -hmm. uh, but still definitely recognized for educators and something to kind of put a little something behind your name and say, I'm not talking about this because it makes me angry and I want to yell about it to everyone (laughs) why I'm talking about it, but yeah that's great that was really helpful actually because I've you know I've looked at that program before too and it's helpful to understand like the requirements in the process and yeah it's good to know that that works more like a mentorship than a supervision because mm-hmm. that'd be really helpful especially in this area you know this work can yeah. feel really isolating definitely sometimes. For you sure. know, we've got so many um, wonderful people around the country, for sure, and even around the world that are doing this work, but it's hard to connect with each other sometimes because, mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes we're far and few between depending on where we're at. So thanks for sharing so much. So um, Jenny, thanks so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. I think uh, it's been a really valuable conversation. Thanks for coming on the pod. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I did not that you'd like to share before we go? Um, I don't think so. The only opportunity again to, to say that word, Mm -hmm. uh, what is so crucial to all of this is just that access and the awareness. They're so key access, access, access. That's how we're going to get better at our sex education at our health outcomes at, you know, lowering, um, contraction rate of HIV. Yeah. 
keeping that in the back of your mind and then understanding how important even just having a conversation with someone is or you may not seem like it but sharing that post on instagram that's something just at least someone is seeing 